Andrew, would you rather have Booker, Aiton, or a Sugarfish franchise? Well, I'd re- definitely rather have the Sugarfish franchise. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, that's yeah. easy, right? Yeah. Like, like, yeah. I mean, sushi's sushi's as stable an in industry as anything. It is in Los Angeles. <laughs> it is a very stable. <laughs> the Hoop Collective. I'm Kevin Ornovitz in Los Angeles. Jonathan Gavoni is in New York City. Mike Schmidt's fellow draft specialist, guru, uh, czar, uh, rabbi, is also, uh, he's actually in Bristol, Connecticut. And Kevin Pelton is forever in Seattle, Washington. It is where his heart is. It is where his soul is. It is where his body is. And uh, he joins us as well. He is uh, an NBA insider for ESPN. Gentlemen, the draft is upon us. It is about 72 hours away. Uh, you guys have produced your regular mock drafts, and people should go to ESPN.com right now, actually, as you listen to this podcast and, and sort of look it over as a primer. Um, and, and I kind of want to so- explore some interesting at least questions I find interesting about the draft. And, and it, one of the reasons I'm asking is I, I watch very little college basketball over the course of, of the season, and I think it's one of the dirty little secrets of many of us uh, with Kevin Pelton being the exception, who cover the NBA, just don't make a lot of time for college ball. And uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is we try to argue about who should go first or who should drop or, or who's overrated is, so we have this body of work that gets finished up in April for most of these guys. And then there are these various rituals that we hear about. We hear reporters talking about them. We hear insiders talking about them, the combine, the workouts, uh, some are by invitation, some are kind of open door interviews, the dinner that they go out with the coach and the GM and maybe the owner. Um, and there are these various unofficial and official uh, events that either add or detract from a player's reputation. And so I, I want to I'll start with you, Jonathan, because you've been doing this longer than anybody. Like if you had to order the events that inform the NBA's opinion about a draftee before the draft, which one that's beyond their body of work, which obviously is probably number one, the body of work they produced either in Europe or in college or wherever. Um, what are the most important events that can alter opinion between April the 10th and June the 22nd? Kevin, I really think it varies uh, team by team, um, organization by organization, also executive by executive. Not everybody watches the same amount of college basketball, international basketball every year. Not everybody travels the same events. You have coaching staffs, which have varying degrees of influence on every team. And you can see some funny things happen at times where the body of work, for example, gets pushed way to the background even. You know, I'll point to – there's two great examples that are on both sides of the spectrum. One is Papayanis getting drafted 13th two years ago. I was at a lot of the FIBA events that Papayanis played in, and there's absolutely no way anybody with a straight face could go to those games, watch him play, you know, do the background intel on him and, and say, this guy is going to be a lottery pick. You know I mean? So the way a guy like that goes in the lottery is he has an amazing workout in front of a bunch of teams. Everybody gets really excited and a bidding war starts and people start to get worried. Well, if, you know, he was 50th on our board the day the draft started. He ended up at 13. Um, so that's, you know, so that's one 
side of it. The other side is, for example, Donovan Mitchell, you know, who started this process somewhere in the 20s on most teams' boards. I remember very distinctly watching him work out in Chicago during the combine. It was a private workout that only me, Mike, um, only me and Mike were at, actually, no NBA teams. And we walked out of there saying, there's no way in hell this guy gets out of the lottery. You know, after we just saw if he's going to work out like this in front of every NBA team, for sure he's getting drafted in the lottery. I moved him up that night, to, I think, to 13th or 14th on our on our board, up from like 25. And I got a bunch of phone calls from teams saying, oh, you're out of your mind. What are you doing? It's just a workout. This is nonsense. You know, this guy was, you know, he... He, he wasn't this, he wasn't that, he wasn't even a first-team all-conference player, you're, 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 you're crazy. So, I, you know, I, I, I didn't answer your question at all, but um, I think that, um, you know, there, it really, really varies, and it's, every situation is so different, and it really depends player by player. For example, you look at like a guy like, like Thon Maker, or this year's version, Anthony Simons, you don't, you know, there's not a whole lot of body work to go off of, so you do have to trust you know, your, 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 your intel, you have to trust your, your, your video, your scouting, you have to trust, um, you know, the, the, the physical measurements and, uh, and the analytics and um, the psychological reports. And I mean, you know, there's so much that goes into it. So I wish I could kind of quantify, maybe Mike can do a better job of quantifying it than me, but it really, really varies uh, team by team. Yeah, I think it, I think it definitely varies too. For me, the interviews play a huge role. You know, not so much guys shooting in an empty gym. Donovan really blew us away there. But I think just him sitting down with NBA teams and blowing them away. One guy who's who's done that uh, throughout this process is Kevin Herter. I think, uh, you know, the, the sophomore from Maryland. Sure, he played great at the Combine. I'm, I'm sure he had a lot of secret fans throughout the NBA who, who were hoping he would stay in the draft and fall to them, you know, at 25 or 26. But he's blown people away in the interview process and the process has really gotten a lot more sophisticated as well. I think these teams are testing these guys basketball IQ, you know, with, with different film and different technology. And it's more than just sitting down and, and going to a dinner with, with a guy nowadays. And so I think that's where people can really separate themselves. Um, you know, I remember speaking of Donovan Mitchell, we were at the combine, we we're getting dinner and drinks with some people and, and one executive walked in and we just started, you know, chopping it up and, he was just raving about Donovan Mitchell's interview and said that was the best interview I've ever had in my X amount of years working here. And then he, you know, continued to kind of rise on our board and, and in the minds of, of other executives. So I think that's a huge part of it. And then the medical also, I mean, when you have guys where there are medical concerns like a Michael Porter and, um, you know, that, that's a piece for sure as well. Hey, Kevin, it's actually a good question for you as a segue you are somebody who you know, spends much of your spring working with these models, trying to really discern the positive data that that can I- inform a projection. And now we live in this world where, as we say, the interview is supremely important. Now, uh, obviously, that's the sort of intangible, uh, really non-empirical piece of information that's like impossible to factor into a projection so are we at this point? And we're told they're more important than ever, and I, and I, I hear the same thing from executives, uh, that, that you know, we, we now live in the era of culture, and, and you want to – everybody wants a Tim Duncan. What – how do you account for – or do you even – are you able to account for sort of the personal intangibles 
in what ultimately is obviously a statistical model. Well, I think there potentially are some ways to do it, and I'd be curious to have Jonathan talk a little more about what Eric Weiss has done with them uh, uh, dating back to the Draft Express days uh, in terms of trying to quantify player personality. But you know, the other thing that you have access to if you're inside a team is – you have all these years of evaluations, uh, both, you know, in terms of players, you know, personality and then also their game. And we think of that as kind of the subjective information, but there are also ways to quantify that. You're probably grading players in various different uh, areas and different skills. How well do those grades match up to what we eventually see on the court? That's something that you can, in fact, quantify and then incorporate into your projections. And uh, I think an interesting way to kind of marry the, the seemingly subjective part of it with the objective part of it. Do you hear from teams doing that, Jonathan? I do. Uh, you hear you hear a lot of, of that about teams trying to get smarter with the way they quantify everything, including how they evaluate their own scouts, because you know, you can't just pat yourself on the back. You know, for example, if you're the Oklahoma City Thunder and you drafted James Harden and say, well, we're geniuses, you know, I mean, Memphis, haha, they drafted a seem to beat. No, if Oklahoma City was at number two in that draft, they would have taken Hashim to beat. So I think what you're seeing teams do, instead of just judging themselves based on the one pick they made, they are telling their scouts to fill out all 60 picks throughout the year and 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 they want to see how it's moving up or down and they'll go back retroactively three five seven years and say you know how accurate were each one of these guys and then it gives them a better indication of how much they can trust their own scouts and, and also what they need to improve on what are certain types of guys that they typically favor um you know what what are the guys that you know that and so it, you do see teams doing all the things you just mentioned and just trying to get a lot better with with how they evaluate the draft. Jonathan, this is going to be uh, kind of a – it's a little bit of a fun question, uh, definitely a process question. So I'm always fascinated. and You know, I, I, I talk to various execs and, and, and scouts off the record during the process. I'm not doing what you guys are doing. I'm just kind of curious and, and – by and large, I, I keep the off-the-record information myself. But but one of the things that's always fascinating is, is we hear, oh, this team likes that guy, and that team likes that guy. And and invariably, some teams are better than others at withholding information or putting out intentional misinformation or keeping it, quote, close to the best we hear. Some teams clearly are very leaky. In your several years of doing this and putting together mocks, uh, who are the best teams? Who are the best teams at the poker table at keeping their intentions with regard to the draft close, or or actually even outright deceptively putting out dis- misinformation? I mean, I think it's inevitably the the the, the, the best ones, you know, are, are the ones that you know you you point to. I mean, uh, you know, people talk a lot about um, you know Boston and and the Spurs and and, and Toronto and. Houston, um, you know, you don't hear a lot about what goes on in their front office unless they really distinctly want you to. Um, but I really think that there is, um, you know, fans of the draft, you know, people that follow it. Um, anytime you put out anything, their first reaction is, oh, it's a smokescreen, you know, like as if like all we do all day is call NBA team and ask them, hey, what are you going to who are you going to pick? You know, like as. Like that's just not it's just not the way anybody operates. You know, it's not how you gather information. It's it, it makes no I've never I've been doing this for fifteen years. I've never once asked an NBA executive, 
who do you like at your own pick? I mean, unless we're talking about, you know, six, three months out, you know, like that's when you can start, you can do your background a lot more easily. I never call somebody this time of year and be like, hey, so, you know, who's, uh, you know, who are you going to take at 16? You know, like just I, I, the way you do it is you say, who do you think is going to be there? You know, who are the teams that are drafting ahead of you going to take? What are you hearing there? And that's where an exchange of information goes on and you try and, and help a team out and also, you know, act as a little bit of a sounding board to say, hey, you know, I was at this game. I saw that. I, I, you know, here's some information that I have. And hopefully, you know, you do that enough and you can kind of get to the bottom of, um, you know, what, what, how the draft is going to shape up. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't see all these smoke screens that people are talking about. Honestly, like um, I really think the whole thing is a little bit overblown. Hey Schmitz, how, what what role do the agents play in all this trafficking of information? I think it's a huge role. Uh, you know, if you spend twenty four hours with with Jonathan, then then you'll see how important of a role they play. Um, just in terms of you know, I mean, they have so much information. Uh, you know, where their guys are working out, they're talking to the teams. Um, who's slotted where, who's where, you know, on somebody's board. So, you know, to me, they're really the key in terms of, you know, understanding how, how all this shapes up. They know where their guys are going and they know where other guys are going. And, and, and people, you know, fans kind of look at agents as like, you know, the boogeyman a little bit. But um, I, I, I mean, teams call them all day long, not just about their players. I mean, these dudes are exchanging information and, um, you know, they've, if they didn't recruit a guy, um, you know, they know his teammate is, they represent his coach, you know, they had someone else that was on their team. And so there's, there's a lot of valuable info you, you can, you can get there. Um, and, um, you know, it's funny because it, agents almost have to be better talent evaluators than the NBA teams do, because, you know, if you make a bad draft pick, that's okay. You know, like you move on to the next one. If, if an agent makes a bad pick and, 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 and you know, signs a, a lottery pick who ends up being a bust, he's not going to make any money off that guy. And he's going to lose quite a bit because he's going to have to, you know, pay for his workouts, um, you know, pay for all of his travel, um, and fly around, whining and dining him, trying to, you know, appease him afterwards. And, you know, so like that guy's not going to eat, you know, like if he signs four, five, six bad players in a row. So, I, there's a couple agents that I think are very, very good at figuring out, you know, who the good players are going to be. And, and they almost do just as much background research and analytics on players as some of the teams do. So it's always interesting to kind of exchange notes with them. And, you know, you always have to take it with a grain of salt. And, you know, you do this long enough, you realize pretty quickly, both among teams um, and agents, who's who's full of it, you know, like if year after year, a guy gives you bad information, you're, you're not going to keep going back to that. Well, and you're, it's not going to, you're not going to be very forthcoming with your own info that they ask you for. So there are certain people in this business you have a relationship with, and it's, it's, a, it's mutually beneficial. It's a two way street. Um, you give them good stuff, they give it to you. And so that's just, you know, that's just the nature of the business. And so, um, you know, if, if, if you're just a flat out lying to people and trying to, you know, uh, this cheat and deceive you're just not going to last very long it's just not it's it, it's a very very small community the, the the nba industry i'm gonna tell you all the driving 
from New York to Connecticut has done a number on my tires. And so you know what I need to be on right now? Goodyear tires. Because they know that performance is everything. So I need good tires. I mean, but you would probably drive more than I drive. So you need good tires, too. I need, I need good tires. And uh, I mean, when you're sitting on the 101... You know, or whatever. Whoa, look at Cass. You're busting out these That's LA That's the facts. only one I know. Do you want to know what I was just thinking of? The Californians from SNL. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just trying to think of like, you know, you're, you take, um, that's all I got. The 101. That is the, uh, most accurate skit that I've ever seen. Like, is it really? <laughs> Angelinos legitimately love to talk about the routes that they take to locations and then argue with each other about like, my what's new, the better route? Yeah, what's the better route? 100% that is incredibly accurate. I mean, I do hear, like, for... What do you call yourselves? LAans? Angelinos? Oh. <laughs> 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 I'm not going to lie. Angelinos, that's the first time I've ever heard that, too. So, I had nothing. I went LAans. Um, <laughs> Try I, saying that three times fast. LAans. 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 <laughs> Uh, that Not sound, easy. That sounds like uh, the Outcast album, E.T. Aliens. That's a good fact. Want to know what's another good fact? When it comes to choosing tires, let Goodyear.com help you choose what's best. Goodyear, more driven. What? This, help- was, this is an ad again? <laughs> yes. <What>? <laughs> Wait, you just thought I was just like having conversation with you because, you know... We just want to talk outside of uh, Hoop Collective. Yeah, I kind of that thought that would happen, but now, now it feels like every time I'm thinking back to all the conversations we've had now, it's Cassie. about money. Yeah, it's all about money. <laughs> and I've, I've wondered, like, oh, why do I want these shoes? And maybe you've subliminally <laughs> incepted these these thoughts into my head. Hey, you know, my friendship comes at a price. <laughs> just kidding, hon. You can have all the tires you want <laughs> with Goodyear. More driven. the first six guys and and am i wrong right now to believe that and i probably am because it, it things change so dynamically right now uh, particularly in this day and age uh when we, when we talk about Aiton and and dodgers and uh, jaron jackson jr bamba bagley and porter that were you know they were probably kind of in a fairly congealed six is that correct is that even a popular assumption or, or a correct assumption yeah, I mean, I think Porter's a bit of a wild card, depending on who you ask. You know, if, if you're talking about sheer talent, um, you could say those six. But I think Wendell Carter is in that mix as well. Um, you know, for some people, Trey Young is as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there does seem to be a bit of a tier, a tier right. there. All right, so which among those guys has helped himself most since April 10th? I think Mo Bamba is a guy who has dominated the process. Um, 
just in terms of, you know, I mean, he, two years ago when we first debuted our 2018 mock, he was number two. So it's, it's not like we've never been high on him. Um, but in terms of reminding people what makes him so intriguing, he's done an outstanding job with that. Um, clearly, obviously measuring 7'10 at the combine with his wingspan is, is not a bad thing. Um, but he's done everything right in terms of packaging his game. You know, he's went and spent time with Kevin Garnett and, and watched film with Joel and Bede and, and, uh, you know, working with Drew Hanlon and, and, you know, the improved shooting, all, all that type of stuff. But, um, he's a kid who, who has really impressed throughout the interview process. Um, and, you know, it's no surprise, but to me, he's a guy who's, who's helped himself a, as much as anyone in that, in that top tier. Yeah, well, let me ask you a question because you you used a phrase that I that I think I understand, and but but you know um, I, I'm not entirely sure, and fans might not. When you say a, he's done a great job of packaging his game, like like what does that mean? Does that mean that he knows what to show off in a workout? He know like uh, are they sending videos or like what what is uh, what is a prospect quote packaging his game mean? Yeah, I think selling himself, you know, um, everybody's process is, is different. And so for him, he's extremely intelligent. So let's go on every talk show. Let's go on, you know, let's go on the jump and let's go on, let's do all that media tour. That's what I'm doing because he's intellectual. He, like I said, he's extremely well-spoken. He can talk sports. He can talk non-sports. So let's, let's do that. Let's let people know how intelligent this kid is. He's going to win some fans doing that. And then also he can shoot it a little bit. So let's build the buzz there. Um, and, and let's get him working with a guy who's, you know, really good at what he does and Drew Hanlon and who, who helps people become better shooters. And then let's, let's add that aspect of it. And then let's link him up with a couple guys like, you know, a Garnett or an MB eater, um, and, and say, you know, he's working with those guys to get better and improve some things. Um, and he's been, you know, he's done a great job with that for a long time. I mean, he went to the Sloan conference, um, He's he I, I just I think they've done a really good job with kind of showing teams and, and showing the public why this kid is so interesting. Um, and I don't think every prospect does that. The big man thing is fascinating to me. And I, I have a piece out Wednesday on not so much on Bamba as Bamba is a case study and and sort of the new age big man. Uh, you, you, you recently wrote wrote a piece as well. Um, it's just so, you know, here you and I a month or so ago publish a piece about how the game has changed. It's become faster, the run and gun. Uh, bigs, in many cases, can't even stay on the floor. Uh, and, and here we are. looking. I'm looking at the top five in, in, the, in the most current mock, and uh, basically four of them are, what, 6'10 and, and, and taller, and then the other ones, Luka Doncic, who's the mo- you know, one of the more oversized point guards we've seen in recent years, you know, along the lines of Simmons and, and maybe Sean Livingston and, and obviously Magic is the great prototype. And so, like, what the hell is my question to you, Kevin? <laughs> I mean, that's the question I was asking in that piece to some extent, because it does seem like it doesn't match up with what we, ju- was, what we just watched in the playoffs, where in the Western Conference Finals, at the end of games, you know, you're getting six foot seven Draymond Green against six foot six PJ Tucker is your quote unquote, uh, I'm using air quotes here, uh, center matchup at the end of those games and and even on the other side of the bracket where it is centers but it's it's al horford and kevin love and and tristan thompson all guys who were drafted
drafted in this league as power forwards and have eventually kind of moved down the position spectrum, both because they've aged and also because, you know, our expectations for what make what makes a center and what makes a power forward have changed a little bit. So I think it's really going to be fascinating because of that conflict to like look back in this in a year and see, you know, it'll be too early, much too early to judge any of these picks at that point. But will there be a reaction to that? From the league, will they will they start valuing wing talent in a, in a different way than you know, or at least at the very top of the draft? Because we are going to see a lot of wings go later. It, it doesn't seem like a particularly strong point guard draft, uh, but you know, it's at the top of the draft is, is where it, it does seem so exceptionally big heavy. Gavoni, I'm fascinated by the whole psychology of sort of mock drafts and ranking. I've always had the suspicion that if you let the 30 front offices, if you told them. Uh, we're going to put something in the water and everyone's going to have amnesia and you would be forgiven for uh, a, a quote bad pick or a bust that just draft who you truly, truly believe is going to be the best player, no matter how much risk, no matter uh, just just how much lack of certitude you have about it, that we would see a wildly different draft. And I'm just wondering just the sort of, I guess I'm asking you to be a behavioral economist a little bit, but like how much groupthink is done in front offices? I mean, we always hear about the team that drafts a guy because or or passed on a guy they kind of suspected was really great, but because he was only essentially slotted 19th and 20th. And how how can we possibly justify taking him at five or four or three? I mean, do you think that if if we uh, if we uh, endowed the world with collective amnesia and and teams could take who they wanted, that the draft would look entirely different. How much of that sort of group think, let's be safe, do you think really exists? Maybe a little bit. I think that maybe what they what teams like use the the mock drafts for is more of a way to narrow down the field a little bit and try and figure out, you know, who's gonna be in their range because you know, we're trying to get the coaching staffs up to uh, up to speed at the end of the season. They can't go and, you know, they can't get through 150 players. And so you're trying to kind of narrow it down. You're drafting 17th and you say, well, you know, here are the nine or 10 guys we're pretty certain are not going to be there where we pick. And so let's narrow this down to 20 or 25 players that'll make this more manageable. But, um, you know, I, I think that where we have influence is more early on in the season is where if I rank a guy, you know, 12th and an NBA team, you know, doesn't have him anywhere or wasn't aware of him, they're going to send scouts out to go watch that guy and make sure that they're not missing the boat, but they're going to, they're going to make their own opinion on a guy. I don't think they're going to draft somebody they don't like just because Jonathan Gavoni has him ranked here or there. So I, I don't, you know, once the season ends or, you know, even midway through the season, I think, I think teams are, are doing things their own way. And, you know, I've seen the way that they put together their draft boards and it's, it's very, very different from ours. And it's, it's very team specific too. It's, you know, based on the way that they play and the team at the players that they already have at, 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 at different positions and, um, you know, there are certain guys who are just non-starters for them because of character issues or, you know, they don't fit um, their timeline necessary or they don't fit their style of play. And so um, that's where I think you'll see, 
you know, team boards being really different than, than ours. I mean, I'd love to tell you that we control the draft and we're, you know, like what we say is, is the gospel, but I, I, I just don't find that to be the case in reality. Let's talk a little bit about the board itself now. Um, we've, we've, we've done the conceptual stuff and, and there might be some more later, but, um, all right, I'm going to ask a basic question because Han, our producer here, uh, and I, uh, we're, we're, we're not as assured about Aiton's absolute certainty as the number one player in the draft is some. Um, I, and, and going back to my uh, conversation with Kevin, you know, he, he's not a stretchy big, especially compared to some of the others on the board, which we're told is now a necessity. Um, I actually defensively and as a rim protector, I mean, clearly has the gifts, but, but isn't as highly regarded in that department as say a guy like Bamba. Um, uh, how did this guy end up as the con- semi consensus? Uh, I actually won't even call him semi To many people, the unequivocal number one pick. Yeah, uh, for, for, for me, I mean, he, you know, putting up twenty and ten, um, you know, at a, at a school like Arizona, basically the first time he's ever been coached. Um, you know, it speaks to speaks to his abilities, and I do think he has a little bit more modern fit. Um, like he's not just a let's dump it down on the block, two power dribbles, and I'm going to dunk in your face. You know, he shot. 34% from three on a decent number of attempts. Um, I think he's going to be a guy who can make pick and pop threes. Uh, and, you know, the defensive concerns are definitely real. Um, we saw that prior to, to college. He, he didn't want to be a rim protector. That's never something he's identified himself as. But I do think that playing at, playing the four at Arizona, which was partially his own doing, um, just by re- kind of, you know, requesting that going in, but playing the four at Arizona didn't do him any favors. I do think he showed his ability to switch. I think he's a guy who can switch on the perimeter. And, you know, you bet on him improving in that area um, just in terms of, you know, having having the length and having the quickness and agility. Um, so to me, he's not as much of a throwback as, you know, it's, it's maybe made out to be. And one thing that maybe doesn't show in his numbers at Arizona, I think he's somebody who can really pass. Uh, he, he didn't have much around him in terms of spacing, um, in terms of how he was used. But to me, the, the progress he's made in the last year, um, you know, I mean, we weren't even really talking about him as a surefire number one pick, uh, you know, as recently as, you know, Nike Hoop Summit. Obviously, he didn't play in, in 2017s, um, but he's made tremendous progress. He's gotten better every single year. Uh, and I do think there are a little bit more modern attributes to his game than maybe we've given him credit for. Pelton, what do the numbers say? Eden's an interesting one. I, I, I think this is one of the cases where I, I thought it was useful to add the uh, AAU statistics from the Nike EYBL to my projections this year with the help of uh, ESPN Stats and Info and, and Neil Johnson, who collected those for us. And he actually blocked shots somewhat less, uh, you know, once you adjust for the level of competition, about as frequently in AAU competition as he did at Arizona. So, you know, I don't know if that particular element of the concern about his defense is, you know, strictly related to playing power forward. Uh, you know, playing somewhat out of position at Arizona. And so, I, I mean, you know, if you have a big man, I don't think that a shoot, shooting is necess- a necessity for a modern big man. I mean, you look at Clint Capella, the success that he had with the Rockets this year. That, way, that though, uh, Going to that point, though, wasn't on the floor in the final six minutes of what was ultimately a pivotal game. 
He wasn't, but he also was on the floor throughout that Utah series, you know, and played a key role in them beating the Jazz, was terrific for them there, and, you know, played great minutes in Game 7 of that series with his offensive rebounding against those smaller Warriors front courts. Uh, So, you know, I I think that you can do it without the shooting, but I think you do have to have the defensive element, and that's that's really the much bigger concern for me about Aiden than anything about him offensively. Doncic, obviously— is I would say he's the most intriguing player in the draft, but but he's become actually one of the more elastic guys uh, at the at the top of of the chart in the last you know, few weeks or so. Uh, a guy we speculated had number one potential. Uh, now we're hearing eh, Sacramento might be tepid. Atlanta has no interest. Um, might even trade down and, and use their lack of interest. Uh, we, we've heard all kinds of things. Uh, I, I'm always uh, I always take that stuff with a grain of salt, but clearly a guy that has stirred concern at the top of the board and kind of there is now a long you know an unlike porter who's kind of elastic in terms of expectation of where he might go he's got an injury you know tonchis is we're we're seeing him in front of the world i mean as we speak essentially so so like what have we learned about our evaluation of european talent uh our evaluation of kind of oddly sized point guards uh, guys, we have trouble categorizing. I mean, I mean it, it, we say the story of Doncic headed into the draft is the story of what? I think it's the NBA's comfort level with college basketball as a feeder system for the NBA. I think that that's really what it is. It's funny because Mike and I deal with a lot of college coaches as well. And because we travel so much internationally, we have um, a lot of access to, you know, potentially great college basketball recruits. Um, that these colleges might, you know, end up looking at. And we've found, shockingly, despite like all the success that guys like Larry Markinen, um, like DeMontis Sabonis, um, you know, Andrew Bogut of Australia, whatever, that these, you know, bringing an international player, you know, to America is not their second or third option, but it's like their ninth, tenth, or eleventh you know, thing that they'd, they'd like to do. They'd much, you know, they, if they can at all costs avoid bringing an international player to the U S they'll do it. And I think it's not quite as pronounced at the NBA level, but I do think there is quite a bit of that, you know, and I, and I really think that particularly when you're talking about drafting guys at the top in the top five, um, it really makes NBA guys squeamish, you know, like, especially at this position, you know, like at the guard spot, um, you know, where I, I just I don't I just think that they have a comfort level, you know, with our, you know, um, w- 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 with our college players that they just don't have with the Europeans. And, and it's part of that is because of how unique Luca is. I mean, how unprecedented what he's doing is. And, you know, maybe the next Luca Doncic five years from now. Well, I mean, it'll be easier on him because he won't be so scrutinized, you know, and there won't be so much inherent skepticism as there is around, you know, this guy here. Um, but it's it, it's been interesting, you know, like you say that his people are kind of implying that his draft stock has dropped in the last few weeks. I mean, I just think that we found out what his true draft stock is. You know, when you put a gun to someone's head, that's when the truth really comes out. You know, it's easy to say, oh, Luka Doncic is going to go here or there, you know, when he's this theoretical guy. Everybody loves him in theory. When it comes time, you know, to put, you know, your uh, nuts on the table and draft a guy, that's when we really find out, are you, are you ready to do it or not? And uh, we're finding out that, a lot of teams aren't, you know, so um, I, I'm still not exactly sure how it's going to play out. You know, there's there's definitely a school of thought that 
a team or a couple of teams are going to make a really strong push here on the day of the draft to try and trade up for Luca. But, you know, the way it's looking right now, um, you know, he's probably not getting picked any higher than four. All right, guys, I'm going to do a, not so much a quick fire, but I'll, I'll, I'll throw some questions out to you, and um, uh, this should be fun. Uh, we'll start with Schmitz. Uh, pro, and now this is one, one for each of you. Prospect on the board, you're most curious on draft night to see where he goes and under what circumstances. Michael Porter, for sure. Uh, you know, he's been the guy we've talked about consistently over and over again. Um, and, you know, is he injured? Is he healthy? What's, is he going to, is he having a pro day? Is he not? Who's there? Who, who, who isn't? Um, you know, clearly a very talented prospect was number one in his class at one point. Uh, but I just want to see how much teams value Intel and how much they value the medical information they've received. Um, and if they're willing, to really take a, you know, quote unquote gamble on this guy when there are a lot of other prospects and willing and able bodies, uh, you know, potentially in that range who can really play. I think Trey Young, I, I think he's, you know, got such a wide gap between his upside potential. You know, if he hits offensively, he's so skilled. Whereas if he, you know, it, like many high usage players, including some of, you know, the, the unsuccessful ones to him, he's be, whom he's been compared if it doesn't work for him offensively, it's hard to slot him into kind of a smaller role, especially with his defensive limitations. So I, I think where he goes is going to be really crucial to how his career ends up developing. Well, we talked about Doncic. That's a big one. But the other one that I would say is Chandler Hutchison from Boise State. Uh, you know, he shut down his whole pre-draft process um, the first day of the NBA Combine. Didn't give anybody medical, no workouts, no interviews. Very clearly, you know, we're being told has a promise from someone in the first round. I just can't wait to see what the story is, who did it, why. You know, a lot of teams feel like this is the guy that maybe would have ended up being drafted in the 30s had he actually gone through the pre-draft process. Somebody decided to shut him down early. You know, is it Brooklyn at 29? Is it Chicago at 22? Uh, you know, does somebody reach and, and just say, screw it, we're going to take him regardless and, and break the promise? So it's um, that's going to be a fun one. I just want to know what the real story was, you know, a, a day or two after the draft when it finally comes out. Team most likely to shock the world, either through their draft transactions in some capacity on draft night. Schmitz, what do you got? Uh, I'm just going to go with the old faithful Sacramento. Um <laughs> <laughs> You know, they've they've done it for us time and time again, and, and why not one more time? You know, maybe they really will take Michael Porter at number two. Uh, they were said to be enamored with him all season long or even, you know, heading into the season. So, you know, they've been reliable for us. Let's let's roll with them. Pelton? Philadelphia, because not necessarily so much because of who they end up with in draft night, but in terms of what they what what they do on draft night signals about what their plans are for free agency. Like, are they are they working to create enough cap space to be able to make a max offer to LeBron? So, you know, I think that's going to be a really fascinating signal for what happens the rest of the summer. I'm going with Boston. Um, you know, 
what are they going to do with all these draft picks that they have, especially the 2019 picks? Are they going to, are they going to make an offer for Kawhi? Is something going to get done here on draft night? Um, you know, there's all this talk that they're trying to trade into the top five. I mean, a couple of teams have confirmed to me that that is real. They are trying to get into the top of the draft. We're not exactly sure for who. There's speculation it might be Bamba. We're not sure about that. So Boston is always a fun one to watch on draft night. I love Bamba for the Celtics just in, in, in so many ways. Uh, some some kind of uh, – because Gavoni and, and, and you and Schmitz travel so much, you, in some ways I kind of live – vicariously through you you have this job that just sends you all over the world uh, i have a couple of questions for you guys uh, and pelton you can participate you who never leave seattle washington you can participate <laughs> he uh, goes to portland sometimes he does go to portland <laughs> i've, seen, I've him portland. seen him in portland oregon <laughs> I brunched with him in portland oregon um, i just, I just got to stay on pacific time zone <laughs> gavoni best international city for a three-day trip uh, it's got to be Rome for me. Uh, I, you never get bored. First of all, the food is incredible. And second of all, just walking around, there's so much history. The the 700th most interesting thing to look at in Rome would be like the number one thing in, in almost any other city in in the world. So I love the people. I love the food. I love the culture. Uh, I love everything about Rome. I think someone once said you're either a Roman or a Florentine. I'm definitely a Roman. You're clearly a Roman. I'm going to go off the beaten path a little bit here. Um, you know, you have Rome and you have, you know, Barcelona and Madrid and, you know, some amazing cities. Um, but don't sleep on Tallinn, Estonia. Oh, uh, with the first pick in the world travel sleep. draft. Mike Schmidt selects Tallinn, don't Estonia sleep. In, from the Balkan, uh, the Baltic states. So yes. I've heard great things about Tallinn. Is it better than Riga? Is it better than Vilnius? How do you... I mean, give me the give me the appeals. Sell it you know, to me. I, I've been to Vilnius. I've actually never been to Riga, so it's hard to say. But there are some great people in Riga. Ivar's strength. You're not a British meathead on a stag party. That's why you've never been to Riga. <laughs> but uh, but no, Estonia is great. You have to go during the summer, clearly, or else you have two hours of sunlight. Um, but on the water, um, you know, kind of an old castle feel, old town type of feel. And, you know, it's on the rise. There, there are some, uh, some great strips, kind of a hipster feel to it outside of the main city. Um, unbelievable people. And basketball is really on its way there as well. So that's my, that's my sleeper spot. Kevin Pelton, best city for an international uh, three-day trip. Can I, can I say Vancouver? Yes, you can say Vancouver. It's a great place. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the Nike Hoop Summit in Portland. So many, so many good international players there. Yeah, the, the, it's the international team, so it qualifies. Schmitz, most insane basketball venue where you've seen a game? Oh, man. Most insane basketball venue I've seen a game. That's a good question. Um, in, in, I will say in Belgrade, I was at the uh, Luka Doncic game um, where he hit the game winner against Red Star. Um, I don't think the, the fan base was quite up to its normal potential, but being there for that was absolutely ridiculous. Um, was you know, there, there fire on the court at any moment? Always, always fire, okay. um, flares in the crowd. And then last year at the, at the EuroLeague Final Four in, in Istanbul as well was, was pretty insane. I was there with Jonathan. Um, but, I, you know, watching Doncic make a walk-off pull-up three, um, you know, against a club that he watched a fair amount of growing up was, was pretty unbelievable. Gavoni, I can't wait for your answer because I, I know the places you've been. Well, Schmitz kind of stole mine. I mean, I, Pioneer Arena, 
Um, the Derby of Belgrade between Red Star and Partizan, that is, you know, that's uh, you have to go the, to one of those games. It's a bucket list if you're a basketball fan. Uh, Owaka Arena in Athens, Panathinaikos, Olympiakos, especially if it's a big game, if it's a playoff game. I actually got to see them play each other in the EuroLeague Final Four. That that is just dangerous. You're just scared for your life. You don't want to walk around too much because you you just don't know who you're going to run into, and you just try to sneak in and out there as quietly as possible. Because really, like it it's it's not a it's not a sport feeling. It's like a how do I survive feeling. I, I really have nothing to contribute on the, this one. After that, I mean, I think I think maybe Taco Bell Arena in Boise is the uh, the most <laughs> off the beaten path I've placed, I've seen again. All right, Schmitz. Best transatlantic airline. Transatlantic airline. Um, hmm. I. I mean, I'm. I'm known to fly some pretty ridiculous. Um, some pretty ridiculous. Uh, you know, airlines, budget airlines. Um, so you're I'm, like on Norwe- You're on the Norwegian air shuttle these days. I'm very regularly on the Norwegian air shuttle. Okay. You know, I, I, I <laughs> Not wow. No, wow. I've done EasyJet. Um, don't bring too big of a bag. Uh, but I like, you know, don't sleep on Singapore air. I oh, recently, no one sleeps Singapore on Singapore. Air. Actually, everyone sleeps cause it's, it's, it's luxurious. Oh, it was amazing. So I'm going to go with uh, Singapore air. All right. Gaboni best transatlantic airline. I mean, I'm a Delta guy. They always treat me so well and they, you know, I'm in New York and I got, um, JFK right by right around the, the street here. So I, I love, uh, Delta, um, Definitely, uh, you know, try to stay away from Ryanair if you can. Um, you know, that's a very, very poor experience. No matter how much money you give them, they will not treat you well. And you uh, got to like pay for the John, don't you? Or, or, or is it not pay, pay for everything. And it's just like getting on the plane is just like one of the worst experiences. You're you're certain to get trampled, and like all these kids are people are like stomping on their heads on the way in, and it's just like. It's very similar experience to being in a Waka Arena, actually, for a basketball game. You're trying to get on a Ryanair uh, plane. <laughs> all right, gentlemen. Um, all right, I'll ask you, Pelton. Have you been across the Atlantic? I, I haven't, but I would definitely go on an Alaska Airlines partner. So I, I, I defer to you on that one. Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm actually uh, Emirates, Alaska Airlines partner, my favorite Alaska Airlines partner. Also Finnair through Helsinki. Nice. Another uh, Alaska Airlines partner. Gentlemen, this was a pleasure. Um I am very much I, – I can't recall a year I'm sort of more fascinated uh, about what's going to materialize on draft day. I mean it, it's, it's, it's been – am I – is this recency bias or has it just been that kind of year? It's, it's, it's open. You know, I think it's pretty wide open in terms of who the best prospect is going to be. Where is Doncic going to go? Um, are, you know, are people overthinking this? Yeah, there's, there's a ton of intrigue with those top five or six guys. For Jonathan Gavoni, for Mike Schmitz, for Kevin, for Kevin Ornitz, yes, that is me, and for Kevin Pelton as well. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Hoop Collective. Enjoy the draft and definitely check out this very cool mock draft as of this morning. Uh, it's the ultimate grade A mock draft. Uh, all the participants here, with the exception of me, uh, I think we're, we're hugely helpful. It's got some great interactive elements. You really learn a ton about the players. It's good looking. It's nice eye candy. And I highly recommend the NBA mock draft grade A mock draft. And so definitely check that out on ESPN.com. And we will talk to you after the draft.